Well, I want us to return this morning to our study of the book of Romans. Please take your Bibles with me and open them to Romans chapter 4. And I want to focus our attention this morning on verses 9 through 17. Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 17. We've been walking our way through chapter 4 over the past several weeks. And we've been examining the doctrine of justification. And we have really had an emphasis on that from this chapter because of what Paul says and the emphasis on the reality that justification comes through faith alone. Faith alone. That even the faith that is expressed that too does not in fact even come by way of our own human efforts or anybody who expresses faith unto salvation. It is not produced by them. Therefore, we must not be confused as to the doctrine of justification since, theologically speaking, justification is a one-time declaration Justification is not a process. Justification does not happen over a period of time or through a means of things. Justification is a one-time declaration by God upon undeserved sinners who believe in what He has declared. It's something you have to get locked in your mind. It is very, very important that you have that down as a, a, a working definition, if you will, of this reality called justification. Justification, the declaration by a sovereign God. The declaration once and once and for all by God upon us as undeserved sinners who have expressed faith in what God has said. This is what Paul is arguing for in the book of Romans. This is part and parcel to the very reality of what Paul wants to get across to all people, that he is not ashamed of the gospel of God because in it the righteousness of God is revealed, chapter 1, verse 16. And those who live, live by faith. It is a faith reality. And so, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is being very careful to ensure that we understand this reality. Why? Because, as fallen human beings, fallen man always desires to have a part in his own justification before God. Paul is being very careful. Paul is being very systematic as the Holy Spirit has inspired him to pen the very words that we have before us. And he's doing that because the human heart, the fallenness of man, always wants part in his own justification. Our heart wants some piece of the action. And so Paul, having declared already at the end of chapter 3, that justification is, in fact, by faith alone, has now then begun in chapter 4 to deal with 
several natural objections that flow out of the heart of sinful man when it comes to this idea that God justifies by faith alone. We remember that he is primarily writing to his fellow Jews. He's writing to those who are steeped in Judaism, to those who are steeped in religion, in keeping the Mosaic law, those who were were those who believe that if I keep these certain things, I will be declared righteous, or I am, in fact, righteous before God. Those who believed that righteousness came to them or was part of their life and would be right before God based upon their own personal efforts to keep it, whatever the standard was. And so the mentality of earning it is prevalent in the mind of every Jew. I have to tell you something. I, I entitled this series an E.F. Hutton mentality, getting rid of an E.F. Hutton mentality. Remember I shared with you the commercial about, you know, we, we make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. Someone came up to me and shared with me the reality that I had the wrong investor there, that it's actually a, 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 a Barney investment, Smith Barney investment commercial where they earn it. And E.F. Hutton's commercial was when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. And so I think maybe both are appropriate. (laughs) We can't earn it, but you need to listen. Earning it is prevalent in the heart of every human. The Jews especially, that Paul is talking to, and Paul would have known himself being a Jew. It's not simply, however, a Jewish problem. It is in the heart and mind of every person who has ever lived because of sinfulness. The natural tendency of every person because of our sinful nature is to believe that we can be good enough to be accepted by God so that He would declare us righteous before Him and that declaration be upon our own efforts at holy living. The evangelical church today, or in the world today, we define that by the word morality. If you are just a morally good person, God will accept you. That's a lie. Sadly, that reality is even in the church. Christian church, because far too often so many so-called Christians move obedience because of salvation. In other words, the outworking of justification and being saved into as well in obedience to that very reality, we take those acts and we move them into the category by which we think that if we do obey, then we will be justified. So even within the church, many of us suddenly become works righteousness people. We become people who, although we know Christ, we have convinced ourselves that our acts of obedience to God cause God to love us in some better way. We have become, when we do that, works righteousness people, even though we would say that we don't believe people are saved that way. So it's works righteousness on one side and on the other side of that 
problem, the gate swings to an antinomianism, a, a, a salvation by way I'm saved, but I never have to keep any standards. I never have to live obediently. I, I swing the pendulum the other direction, and I become someone who, who in theological terms is just a theological liberal. Someone who says, I believe in Jesus, but don't tell me my life has to be any different. Big word for that is antinomianism, no law. No need for obedience. That's the idea. So on one side, you've got those who, who say, well, my activity causes me to be liked by God more. And on the other side, you have those who would say, well, yeah, I'm saved, but it doesn't really matter how I act at all. Both of those positions are false. Paul is dealing with religious Jews who believe that their activity makes them right before God. He's been anticipating all along in his writing the objections to the argumentation that he has been given that justification is by faith alone. And he already dealt with some of that argumentation in verses 1 to 8. He dismantled the notion that Abraham and David, their their historical fathers in the in the faith, the favorite king, or, or the historical father, by the way, of the nation, Abraham, and their favorite king, David, the highest on the pinnacle for their nation, that either one of them were justified by their efforts. They were both justified by faith. Now, here in verses 9 through 17, he is crushing the idea that if works are involved in salvation, Very important. If works are involved in salvation, then surely religious ritual has to be in some way involved. That's that's the idea that they're getting. Paul is saying if works are involved, then religious ritual somehow has to be involved in that, and I want to totally dismantle that idea. And the religious ritual that he is addressing here in verses 9 through 17 is the idea of circumcision, the religious ritual of keeping the law by way of circumcision. For us, for some today, it might be baptism. As long as I'm baptized, I'll be right before God. For others, it might be some kind of religious ritual that they've attached to their own salvation. I I, I signed a card. I I walked an aisle. I, I go to church. I grew up in a Christian home. All of those things are the outworking my life by way in which I get justified. So let me read our text for us, verses 9 through 17, in order to unfold for us Paul's argument that none of those things are true. Notice what he says. He says, is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? Remember, he's speaking about the blessing in which was David that David was declaring, and we'll get into that in a moment. Is this blessing upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? In other words, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised, and he received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be 
the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void and the promise is nullified because the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with the grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the sight of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. I want to stop right there because some time ago in our study of the Gospel of John, if you've been following along either online or you've been here in our evening service, we, we saw some time ago in our study the, willful, the, the idea of the anatomy of willful unbelief. We talked about that in John chapter 9. And part of that anatomy is that willful unbelief continually asks for more and more proof. The, the argumentation against why someone should believe is answered, and they say, give me more proof, give me more answers, give me more things. I, I'm just not going to believe. So each and every time an argument is, is made against the truth and, and that argument is dismantled by truth, another argument is then postulated because they want more and more proof. This is the length to which unbelief will go. Why? Because unbelief doesn't want to believe. Unbelief does not want to believe. In fact, unbelief cannot in and of itself believe. Therefore, it continually brings up more and more objections to why it should not believe, and specifically in this case, why salvation by faith alone cannot be true. So, it is here the unbelief of the Jewish brothers and sisters of Paul. And Paul is anticipating their argumentation and he continues to address their potential arguments. And so in verse 9, he lays out the statement. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? Because we say, Faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. In other words, you can't have it both ways. If faith is reckoned to Abraham as righteousness, then in in what way was that reckoning taking place? Paul in essence is saying, is the happiness, the blessing, is the happiness that comes to those whose sin is covered by God. That was the blessing that David mentions in 
the verse just before that, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is that blessing the same blessing that David said, the happiness that David said someone has when God covers your sin, never to look at it again, is that only for the actual Jew, that's what Paul's saying when he says the circumcised, the actual Jew, or is that also for the non-Jew? In other words, does this justification come to or through some religious ritual? Does justification come through a religious ritual practice? Or is it actually by faith, like we say it is? So here is what Paul's saying. What does our history show concerning the religious ritual of circumcision? What does it actually show? Notice. Is this blessing upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? Right? Again, Paul is pointing back to Old Testament history, just like he has done already throughout our study of Romans. He's pointing back to the Old Testament. The history of the Old Testament is very clear. And every Jew knew the history of the Old Testament. They knew it well back in those days. I was recently with Joe when he was in the hospital prior to his surgery. He was asking the anesthesiologist if he knew that the Bible said Jesus was God. And, of course, the anesthesiologist said, "Uh, we probably read two different Bibles. And Joe said, well, are you a Jew? He said, yes, I am. And so I said, Who is Isaiah 53 talking about? The suffering servant passage. And this Jew said, that's in the Old Testament? But he said that because the rabbis don't read that passage in the Jewish synagogue. So he might not even have known it was in the Old Testament. I said, yes, Isaiah is one of the greatest prophets of Israel. Yes, it's in there. Well, this is the point. Every Jew then would have known the history They would have known the history of the Old Testament. Now, let let me just say this, that there's an idea within the evangelical church, even today, especially in the liberal circles of evangelicalism, that promotes the idea that Christians today do not need the Old Testament. Do you? Maybe even you think like that in your own mind. Well, I'm a Christian. I don't need the Old Testament. In other words, the Old Testament was for the Jews. It is for the Jews. We are New Testament Christians. The things of the Old Testament are no longer for us. Do you think like that? I want you to know that that's foolishness if you think like that. At the very least, Because we could not even follow the logic of Paul if we didn't know the Old Testament. Because Paul uses it so often. But there are other passages in the New Testament that tell us that the things of the past, the things of the Old Testament are there as an example for us so that we don't do the same thing, so that we don't follow the same errors. So we do need the Old Testament. The Old Testament is important. It's as important as the New Testament, and without a knowledge of it, we would simply pass over, probably without any care, the argument that Paul has for us here, 
because he's referring to Old Testament history. So we cannot just rightly pass over it because the New Testament is rooted in the history of the Old Testament. And so Paul asks the question in verse 9, and really he continues it in verse 10, the first part of verse 10, how then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And then Paul, in the rest of verse 10, all the way through verse 17, gives a definitive answer to that reality. In simple terms, really, he says justification does not come through religious ritual. Justification does not come through religious ritual. If you still believe justification comes by way of works, then we need to go all the way back to chapter 1 and start over again. Justification does not come through works. Specifically, it does not come through any kind of religious ritual works. Why? Well, Paul lays out three reasons. Three reasons here in verse the last part of verse 10 all the way through verse 17. And I want to give those to us this morning. Three reasons why justification does not come through religious ritual. Primarily speaking to the Jews and speaking about circumcision, but I want us to understand the greater principle, the reality that no religious ritual can make you justified. Reason number one is this. Reason number one is this. Justification does not come through religious ritual, specifically for the Jews, because, in particular, the religious ritual of circumcision was a sign of the promise given to Abraham. A sign of the promise. Notice what Paul says. Not, verse 10, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, and that righteousness might be reckoned to them. The word seal, Paul uses the word seal right there in verse 11. Seal simply means this, to authenticate, to authenticate. That's what it means in the original. So Abraham believed God and then received the sign of circumcision, which was the means of authentication as to the validity, notice now, as to the validity of the righteousness of the faith which he had while he was uncircumcised. Do you see that? He had faith. He believed God while he was uncircumcised, and circumcision was then the sign, the the authentication of the validity of the faith that he had. The word seal, Paul uses here, it's the same word he uses in Ephesians chapter 1. Now get this, he's talking about us as Gentile Christians. Here's what he says. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth. What message is that, Paul? Well, he says, the gospel of your salvation. After listening to the gospel of your salvation... 
having also believed. In other words, you can't just hear the words and it somehow drip on you and you become a Christian. No, you have to believe it. After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him. Who? In Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So the seal upon our faith is the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. So having the Holy Spirit given to us proves to us that that not only is faith genuine, but all that God promised through Jesus Christ will in fact come to pass. He is to us, the Holy Spirit is to us the stamp of authenticity, not only of our faith, but of the promise that God made. So just like Abraham, and just like all who truly believe, we too have a seal of God's authentication. The authentication of His promise. The authentication of the faith that we have exercised, the faith that we were given by God to exercise. We have been given the sign of the Holy Spirit, the stamp of God's approval, who is the pledge of our inheritance in Christ, so that what God promised, we know for sure will come to pass. Now, circumcision had a twofold implication. Circumcision had a twofold implication. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, for the Jew, just like the promise to Abraham, the promise had a twofold implication. When God gave a promise to Abraham, there was a, a, a twofold implication within the promise. Circumcision had an implication for the physical promise given to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter 22, where God is speaking to Abraham and and building or giving Abraham more understanding of the promise that he had given him, circumcision had an implication for the physical promise given to Abraham and his physical descendants, the Jews. There are there are aspects of the physical promise that God gave to Abraham that we as Gentiles will never be a part of. Never. We're not Jews. We're not going to have a land, and we're not going to possess that land like the Jews will one day. We're not Jews. You find that in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, where... God promises Abraham a land and a people and a blessing. But there's also the spiritual descendants of Abraham. There are the physical descendants of Abraham, and there are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. A circumcision of the heart, if you will, just like he says, Paul says back in chapter 2, verse 29, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. 
So there's an implication that's not simply physical in the promise to Abraham, but there is a spiritual implication within the promise of Abraham in which all who believe are included. So circumcision itself didn't do anything by way of the spiritual righteousness to Abraham. It didn't do anything by way of authenticating the spiritual reality in the sense that that his life would be changed and therefore he had that circumcision take place. It was simply to authenticate the genuineness of faith and the promise that was given to him 14 years before he ever got circumcised. In other words, physical circumcision did nothing for Abraham's justification. In fact, it did just the opposite. Justification was the basis for the seal of circumcision. It wasn't that circumcision was the means by which justification came. No, no, no. Justification was the means through which the seal came of physical circumcision. And so too it is with us. Justification is the basis for the seal of the Holy Spirit given to us. So justification does not come through religious ritual. Justification did not come through circumcision. Circumcision was the outworking of justification in order to authenticate the reality of it. Circumcision is just a sign of the promise. So justification does not come through religious ritual, number one, because circumcision is just a seal. It's a sign. Reason number two, though, is this. Justification does not come through religious ritual, whatever that might be. It might be, you might think baptism saves people. No, it doesn't. Whatever it might be, religious ritual doesn't do it. And here's why specifically with the Jews. Because Abraham would be, needed to be, as God designed it, Abraham was to be the father of all Jews and all Gentiles who believe. Notice what he says. So that, verse 11, he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness might be reckoned to them and the father of circumcision to those who not only are the circumcision, i.e. the Jews physically, but also those who follow in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So not only all Jews in the sense of the physical part of the promise, but even better yet, those who have faith in Jesus Christ. It's a simple declaration. Abraham is the spiritual father of all who believe. He's the spiritual father of all who believe. In other words, his faith in God is the pattern for all who believe. It's the pattern. Now, with that said, someone might in their mind begin to think that because Paul makes that declaration about Abraham, that he is the father of all who believe, and the principle on which they believe that they are made righteous before God by faith, they might think that Abraham is somehow the first who ever believed. Not true. Not true. 
Because in the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, you certainly find people who lived long before Abraham. In fact, it talks about Abel and Enoch living long before Abraham, and yet they were justified before God. How? Through faith. Through faith. The only difference with them and with Abraham is that their justification by faith was not formally authenticated at that time with a sign. That's all. It just wasn't authenticated with a sign. With a, For us, ours is not with circumcision. That's not how it's authenticated. Our faith isn't authenticated through that sign as it was with Abraham. Our faith is authenticated through the Holy Spirit. We've received the Holy Spirit. So I believe the text is making it very clear to all of us that Abraham is the faith father, if you will, if you want to put that title on it. He is the faith father of all who would believe. From history past to history future, both those who are Jews, those who are circumcised physically as the sign of the physical promise of God to the Jews and of the Gentile who does not belong to the physical promise given to the Jews through Abraham. Abraham's still the, the example of how righteousness comes. It comes by faith. There, we cannot conclude in any kind of way that religious ritual contributes anything to justification before God. Sadly, sadly, I find in evangelicalism the failure to understand that fact, the failure to embrace that reality in all of its facets has brought all kinds of confusion into the church. Just like it was bringing confusion with the Jews. The Jews failed to see that circumcision is a sign that follows justification have made it the means of justification. They've flipped it on its head. They've taken an act of a process of obedience to God that, that comes from faith and made it the means of being right with God. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. We do that in the evangelical church. People with baptism believe in baptismal regeneration believe that if I'm in the church all the time, if my church attendance is at the right level, therefore I'm going to be justified before God. You see it rampant in the Catholic church with means of infused grace. Just do all of these things and and you'll get the infusion of grace through them all and hopefully that's enough to at least put you on a level in purgatory, which isn't even in Scriptures, that maybe your friends can pray you out someday. do those things, if I continue to do them, then I'm justified before God because of it. Paul is emphasizing again that justification is by faith alone. There is no sense in which you can earn your justification. So to build any other means of justification is to simply deny the truth of Scripture. That's the reality. To say in some kind of way, even in a little mustard seed size kind of way, that, that your little added mustard seed was what threw you over the top. That is to not only 
say you are a works righteousness person, but to say you're a works righteousness person totally denies Scripture and therefore denies God altogether in what He said. In reality, it's just another outworking of unbelief. To say, I don't believe what God has said. Justification doesn't come through religious ritual because circumcision is a sign of the promise. It doesn't come through religious ritual because God made Abraham the father of all who would believe, both Jews and Gentiles. And if circumcision was a sign of justification, then only Jews would be saved. That brings us to the third reason. Justification doesn't come through religious ritual because the relationship of faith with religious ritual denies it. When I say religious ritual, I just want to be clear here. I mean obedience to the commands of God. Obedience to the commands of God. The Jews got circumcised. God said, you you must be circumcised on the eighth day. They got circumcised. God had that as a seal, sign. There's all kinds of religious practice, religious ritual. There's all kinds of obedience to what God has said. Justification doesn't come through religious ritual because of the relationship of faith with that with religious ritual, with obedience to the things of God. Now, notice once again that Paul makes a categorical statement in verse 13. Notice what he says. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of Faith. That is a declaration. That is a statement of fact. It's just like the statement he made in verse 9. It is just like the other statements he has made throughout chapter 1, 2, and 3, all the way up to this point in reference to what God has done or what man is and, and that we are without excuse. All these kinds of ideas. Here it's just a statement. And that this statement is a statement of fact. It is true, and it is recorded in the history of the Old Testament, and it is recorded in the life of Abraham. Abraham, the promise given to Abraham that he would be heir of the world, didn't come through the command of God that he do something. Rather, it came through faith. So the, the relationship of faith with the law speaks against this idea that religious ritual brings about justification or obedience to the commands. To deny it is not simply to deny factual history, but it is also to deny the veracity and truth of Scripture as God's Word. You understand that? To deny... What the Scriptures say in factual history concerning Abraham is to deny the Scriptures together. So unlike some today who deny the authorship of the first five books of Moses, that's part of liberal theology. They say, oh, we just don't believe it's actual fact anymore. Well, 
you find Abraham in the first book of the Bible. If Abraham isn't factual, then the Bible isn't factual, and our redemption isn't factual, and faith in order to get righteous isn't factual, because that's where it started. You can't remove a link and still have a chain. So to deny the truth of God's Word in one place, especially back in Genesis as to creation, the flood, and all the other historical data that God gives us about understanding Him, then you are denying the life of Abraham as well and the promise made by God to Abraham. That's what Paul means when he says the promise in verse 13. He means the actual words spoken by God to Abraham, the promise. Those began in chapter 12. They continue and were reiterated in chapter 15, beginning in verse 7. And he, that is God, said to him, that is Abraham, I am the Lord that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Okay, God had told Abraham, go to a land. I will show you where it is in chapter 12 and chapter 15. God is saying to Abraham, here you are. Here's the land. I'm going to show you exactly what I promised to you even back in chapter 12. And then it's even more clear with the trust of Abraham and his faith in chapter 22. when God tests to see if Abraham really loves him. God knew it, but Abraham needed to know it. Chapter 22, verse 16 through 18, But by myself I have sworn, this is the Lord, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, of the heavens, and the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now we know that this is the promise that Paul is referring to here. We know that's, that's what he means when he says promise because of what he says in verse 18. In hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become the father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. That is a quote from Genesis 15, verse 5. But what is important for us to understand is that that promise that was given to Abraham that Paul is referring to there in verse 14 or verse 13, when he says the promise, that promise that was given to Abraham, was given to Abraham some 430 years before the law about circumcision was ever given through Moses. How do we know that? How do we know it was given that way? Certainly it doesn't say that in Genesis. Yes, you can follow the history and see when the law comes in through Moses. Abraham's long off the scene, but... It says it specifically in Scripture. You say, where? Galatians chapter 3. Verse 17. What I am saying is this. Here's what Paul says. The law which came 430 years later. You don't even have to do the math. Paul did it for you. 
which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. The Galatians had the same problem the Jews are having. Righteousness, they believe, comes by works. Paul says, no, no, it doesn't. And so in the promise was the whole world the whole world would be blessed through the promise to Abraham concerning his seed. Yet seal, important word in verse 11. Now in verse 13, you have his descendants. And you have the idea in the promise in Galatians and in Genesis of the seed. How do we define the seed? How do we define the seed? Well, we go to Scripture to define the seed from the promise. The promise in Genesis chapter 22 where your seed will bless. And how do we define it? Well, Paul defines it for us in Galatians 3. Once again, right before the verse that I just read earlier in verse 16, here's what Paul says. Now the promise, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many but rather to one and to your seed. Who is that, Paul? That is Christ, he said. So right there in Galatians chapter 3, we have the interpretation from the Apostle Paul of the Hebrew Old Testament promises made to Abraham where the ultimate emphasis is not upon Abraham at all or upon even the physical descendants of Abraham, but upon the seed who is Christ. He is the seed, and we are only the seed of Abraham by being in Christ. So all spiritual promises that come to us, those in which we are heirs according to the promise made to Abraham, are only those through Jesus Christ. They are only ours because of His righteousness, which we receive by faith alone. And it has to be that way, or if faith is void. That's what Paul said. Right? Notice verse 14. If those who are of the law are heirs, Faith is made void and the promise is nullified. You see, if righteousness comes by works, if it comes by religious ritual, if it comes by keeping a a set of rules that God lays out, then you don't need faith. And if the promise is by faith, then the promise is nullified if faith isn't required. That's Paul's point. History proves it, but not just history itself. The nature of the law proves it. Notice what Paul says at the end of verse, or at verse 14 and 15. Notice what he says. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is void, and the promise is nullified because the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, Neither is there violation. When he says where there is no law, he doesn't mean no standard. 
He means no requirement of the standard in order to receive righteousness. Where there is none of that, there's no violation of that. It's all by faith. It's all by belief. The law, in its specifics, had not been declared when the promise was given. Remember, 430 years before the law ever came through Moses was the promise given to Abraham. It wasn't that there was no sin before the law. There was sin. certainly was sin. We see it even back in the garden. It just hadn't been cataloged for us. We just didn't know certain things were called that. We didn't see it clearly, but when the law was given, everybody knew clearly the violation. And since the law only exposes the violation of the law, then the law can only bring wrath. Now, I know sometimes they do this in law enforcement just to kind of create a relationship between the people and law enforcement. But how many of you ever drove down the street and a policeman pulled you over just because you were obeying the law? Anybody? Call them. Right? They just don't do that. That's not what their purpose is. They're there to exact the law. You break the law, the wrath comes out. That's what the law does. No one gets a reward for keeping the law. Your reward, you know what your reward is for keeping the law? You don't have wrath upon you. So if the promise is through the law, if it's through law keeping, if it's through religious ritual, if that's how the promise came, through religious keeping religious ritual, then there's no necessity for faith. Yet the righteousness of God comes by faith. Why is that so? Because the law is only interested in works and deeds. That's all it's interested in. It's only interested in you doing what's required. And so the command says, do this or do that. That's what the law says. Do this, do that. So the law is only interested in your behavior, what you do, your actions. That's all it's interested in. So when you bring in the law, the principle of faith is gone. It's made void. Because if you don't do the right thing, it's going to smack you. That's what it does. Faith is opposed to works. The law only requires works. Faith is opposed to that. And so if it's by works that righteousness comes, then the promise to Abraham is void. It's a... It's a done deal. It's worthless. Why trust it? Because it was given when there was no formal law. And if law brings righteousness, then that promise is worthless. And yet Abraham didn't have to do any work for it to be effective. It was effective. The promise was effective not because Abraham did something. The promise was effective because the one who made it is faithful. Because the God of the promise is effective. And Abraham believed that. In other words, obedient action. Abraham's obedient action to God and thereby circumcision later all came after 
he believed. He believed God, and therefore he went. I was thinking this week how crazy it would have been for Abraham to wake up one day and say, hey, listen, family, my extended family, gather around, gather around, everybody gather around. I'm going to take all the stuff that I have and take my father with me, even though he's not supposed to go, but I'm taking him anyway. And I'm leaving. We're moving. Where are you going, Abraham? I don't have a clue. I don't know. I just know I'm leaving. Somewhere God told me. What? Are you talking about Abraham? You're nuts. You're nuts. You believe that, Abraham? Yeah. Yeah, I believe it. And the next morning he gets up and goes. He's just sitting there waiting. Hey, Abraham, you nutbag. You realize that's what happens with us? You're going to believe upon Jesus Christ? You're crazy. A guy who died on a cross and you say it's going to do something for you, you say somehow that's going to make you acceptable before God, well, you go do that, you Jesus freak. That's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. But it's only nuts to you because you don't believe God. Abraham believed So the, con- the consequence of righteousness by works is that it would be by law. If righteousness comes by works, then righteousness comes by keeping the law. And if it comes by keeping the law, the only thing the law brings is wrath, not righteousness. Do you see the logic? Do you see the, the, the relationship between faith and the law? Faith and religious ritual, you can't have them mixed. They can't be mixed. They're opposed to each other. And since the promise was given before the law, then if righteousness is by following the law, then there is no real promise. No one follows the law. We're all lawbreakers. And so if we're all lawbreakers, then the only thing the law produces is wrath. So we all deserve wrath. And we will never have righteousness if it's not by faith. Even your best day is still your worst day. And the blessing that Paul has been referring to is the same blessing that David was referring to. The blessing of having your sins covered. Having God not put to your account the sin and the penalty of that sin. So if righteousness comes through keeping the rules, no matter what those rules are, whether it's Mosaic law, whether it's modern forms of morality, whether it's some kind of so-called Christian duty, some kind of religious activity, whatever it is, then we are actually those people who have no promise of ever having our sin covered through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, because the promise is not there. It's null and void if it's through the law. Righteousness can't come through religious ritual because the nature of the law is to expose the violation of it. Not to produce righteousness. That's why justification must be by faith. That's exactly what Paul says. Notice verse 16 and 17. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. 
in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law. When he says that, he means to Jews. Not only to those who are Jews who believe, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. Paul's dealing with both sides. Yeah, there's one aspect of the promise that even if you don't believe God, you're going to have because God's not going to nullify the promise of a physical land and a place and one day Jesus Christ is going to come back and rule from that for a thousand years. That's a still intact promise. But all the spiritual promises that are in Abraham by faith, you're you're outside of that if you're a Jew and you don't believe. it is written, verse 17, through the father of many nations have I made you in the sight of him whom he believed. God said that. Abraham believed. God, who gives life to the dead, and he calls into being that which does not exist. He makes us alive and we are dead. It has to be by faith so all kinds of people are included. Not just Jews. Not just Jews who are physically circumcised and who, and who are part of this physical promise, but also Jews who have been circumcised and believe by faith, as well as all people from every nation, tongue, and tribe, all Gentiles everywhere. So the promise made to Abraham was a twofold promise. It had a physical aspect, like I said, and it also had a spiritual aspect. And we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. If our heart has been circumcised by faith, all those who have faith in the promise that God has made to us. What's that promise? That in the seed of promise, Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, we would be made heirs of the same spiritual promise made to Abraham through the means of the same kind of faith. why Paul spells it out so clearly in Ephesians chapter 1 when he says we have all of this in Christ. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. When you read that in Christ, have in your mind, in the seed of Abraham. There's a link there all the way back to the Old Testament. There's a link that takes you in reality all the way back to the promise given in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 when the serpent's head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. So why is it faith alone? Because faith is in accordance with grace, Paul says. For this reason it's by faith, that it might be in accordance with grace. I love that. Grace is the kindness shown to someone who does not deserve it at all. That's grace. Now let's think about that for a second. Because grace is absolutely free to all who believe. Okay? Grace is free to all who ever believe, but it cost everything of Jesus Christ. Romans 2.4 says it this way, the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. That's how Romans 2.4 said it. That's how Paul said it. Do you not know it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? The kindness of God that leads us to repentance and faith in the same kindness 
is the kindness that not only gave us by grace the leading to repentance, but it was that same kindness that was the arm of wrath on Jesus Christ. Listen, we don't understand the kindness of God toward us unless we fully understand our sin that deserves the wrath that came upon the Son. It doesn't even look like kindness to us if we don't understand we deserve the wrath. And so when Romans 2, 4 says it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance, there's two, that, that arrow goes two ways. It goes to the gracious side to us that does not hold us accountable for the very sin that it's holding the Son accountable for. What we deserve, He got our sin, our penalty. We got what we do not deserve. Freedom from the guilt of sin and His righteousness. That's grace. That's the two sides. You cannot separate those. And so in the promise made to Abraham, in there was included a promise made to all who would ever believe in Jesus Christ. They too who would believe in God, would, that God would give His life for them, they too would be called out of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. They would be called out of death into life. Verse 17 clearly says that all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, It's in Him, it's in the sight of Him whom He believed, God who gives life to the dead, calls into being that which does not exist. Those who are saved are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Let us do away with any kind of notion that we can somehow earn our way to justification. Let us do away with that. Instead, let's just simply thank God that it does not depend upon us. It depends upon faith in accordance with grace. The promise might be to all of us who believe. Jew, Gentile, male, female, old, young, does not matter. You must believe. Now let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for our time this morning. What a rich truth. Father, I trust that your words are clear to us. That even if the nuances and the details are muddled in some kind of way, that at least at the very end, the truth of knowing that justification comes by faith alone and no other way, that that would be clear in our minds. That we would look at our lives every time and and each time know that even even the works, the outworking in our faith and and the obedience that we desire and want because we know Jesus Christ by faith would not be moved into the category whereby we think you love us more if we do the right thing. 
you could never love us as much as you ever have except Jesus Christ alone. And you call us now to obedience and have equipped us to obey by the power of your Spirit. Help us do that. Help us be like Christ because we walk by faith, knowing that we are secure in you. And that justification, we are no longer, as as Paul will say, we're, we're no longer enemies of yours. Not because we did something, but because you did everything. You gave the promise and you created a way and you brought the seed and you even gave us the faith to believe. Thank you for that, Lord. To you goes all the glory forever and ever and ever. In our precious Savior's name we pray. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.